it's pretty hard, I think, to imagine <laughs> the reversal that happens between where we left off last week and where we pick up this week, right? The, the text we're looking at last week, uh, they had a hard time restraining them from offering sacrifices to them as gods in the flesh, and things uh, rapidly take a turn, I guess would be the best way to say it. Uh, as uh, Paul and Barnabas have been preaching in Lystra, uh, the Jews that they had aggravated in Antioch and Iconium decide to pay a visit. Maybe word had got back, or in some way they knew that they'd made it to Lystra, and so uh, they travel about 100 miles uh, to catch up with Paul and Barnabas in Lystra, and in some way or another, they persuade the crowds that uh, Paul needs to stop. And so uh, these uh, Jews from Antioch Iconium, along with the citizens of Lystra, uh, decide to stone Paul, and uh, thinking him dead, they drag him out of the city and leave him at the gate. Right? That's uh, it's a pretty shocking turn. You know, like 20 minutes earlier, you're ready to worship this person as a god, and now you've decided you're going to kill him. But uh, so goes the advance of the gospel at times. And as uh, Paul is laying outside the city, the disciples uh, gather around him, which is uh, an interesting note because so far w w he hasn't really said anything about the people's uh, positive response to the hope of the gospel, right? In 18, or where we left off last week in verse 18, Nothing had been said about people believing, and then in 19, pick right up with the opposition, but apparently between verse 18 and 19, some people had responded positively to the preaching of the gospel in faith, and Barnabas, uh, presumably, and those disciples gather around Paul and uh, take him back into the city, and then he and Barnabas move on to Derby, As we've seen happen once already, uh, it seems Paul and Barnabas' general pattern is never to uh, shy away from opposition, but when opposition reaches a fever pitch and their continued presence seems to threaten the new Christian community, they move on uh, so that their presence isn't ultimately a distraction. And so they go, uh, and <coughs> excuse me, uh, preach the gospel there in Derby. Luke doesn't really tell us what happens, whether it's good or uh, bad, but many disciples are made, whether uh, they faced opposition or not, and then they make a, a circuit back. They go through Lystra and on Tyconium and to Antioch. Notice. Just to be clear, Lystra is the place where Paul was just stoned. Iconium and Antioch were where the Jews who hated Paul so much that they traveled to Lystra to see Paul stoned came from. Right? So he is going, he and Barnabas are going right back through cities that very much oppose Paul and Paul's preaching of the gospel. And I'm sure at, uh, at intense risk personally. These places surely hadn't forgotten what Paul and Barnabas had done uh, to this point. And so 
uh, risking uh, health and safety, they circled back through all the cities they had just been through with the purpose of strengthening the souls of the disciples. They encouraged them to persist in the faith, and they tell them that there are many tribulations. And notice the we. They're including themselves. There are many tribulations we must face in order to enter the kingdom of God. And it's at that point, as a, uh, we're going to see a pattern develop uh, that very much uh, this is the first instance of a continued pattern through the rest of the book, where uh, sometimes I think we think that uh, the job of a Christian is to uh, share the gospel with people. And if a person responds positively to hearing the gospel, our job is done, right? Like we've done the thing that we need to do. Thank God they responded the way we want them to respond. And, and that's the goal of a Christian is to share the gospel with somebody and then see that person respond positively. But what we see in Paul and Barnabas's uh, ministry, I think, is that is uh, the first step in obedience to God. That certainly Paul and Barnabas would say reaching someone with the hope of the gospel is a part of our work, but uh, Paul and Barnabas never think a positive affirmation of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the completion of the mission. Right? They are in the business of making disciples. Right? They want to see people respond positively to Christ in faith, but on a positive response, they don't just move on, but they encourage these people to continue, to persist. They give them continued uh, direction, instruction. Right? They help them understand what it means then to, to live a Christian life. They are not simply in the business of reaching people with the hope of Jesus Christ. They're in the business of both reaching and teaching people. They understand that when Jesus called us to make disciples and to teach them to obey all that he had commanded right like they're placing their faith in jesus was the beginning of the journey of a disciple that a disciple uh, needs continued instruction needs continued encouragement uh, needs to see what it looks like to live in obedience to christ and so paul and barnabas uh, i think are are demonstrating uh, something about the nature of disciple-making in this loop back through the city where they are uh, demonstrating, I think, continued concern for these disciples' growth in the hope of the gospel. They are uh, surely, uh, surely, and, and rightly, I think, uh, understanding the, the role of a disciple as a learner, continuing to learn more and more about Christ and his call in a person's life, but they're also uh, not, I think, simply exhorting uh, these people to do something that they themselves are not doing, right? That uh, they're not saying, hey, you all, you're going to have to suffer in order to follow Jesus, but we're, like, that's not our job. Like, we're not going to do that, right? Like, in order to give this encouragement, 
They're going back through cities where it's very likely that they could suffer more. It has already happened that they've suffered significantly in the list for themselves. Right? Like, just like we see Saul uh, have an active hand in the stoning of Stephen for the sake of the gospel, now Saul, as Paul, has been stoned for the sake of the gospel. That he recognizes, he and Barnabas recognize, that uh, their role isn't just to exhort the disciples towards continued faithfulness in Christ, but to live the life that they're calling others to. And so uh, they are, I think, demonstrating what it looks like to be an effective disciple maker. Right? That they continue to pour themselves uh, into these people, and we'll see that again and again from this point forward. In fact, most of the rest of the New Testament is Paul or some other apostle writing letters to people who have already responded positively to Christ's grace and continuing to encourage them to persist in the faith or helping them understand how the gospel comes to bear on life. And uh, as they're preparing to depart, uh, they appoint elders for them in every church. Right? And I think uh, seeing another dynamic play out here where uh, they understand that their mission isn't simply uh, to see people respond positively to the grace of Christ, but it's also to establish churches for the continued care of these people. Right? That they're not, <clears throat> they're not uh, creating sheep and then leaving those sheep without shepherds, but their interest is in both seeing uh, sheep, seeing more and more people come to Christ, but also in seeing those people appropriately cared for. And so, as the community develops, uh, <clears throat> as the community develops, and uh, some people uh, apparently take roles as leaders, uh, Paul and Barnabas recognize their roles as leaders in the congregation. And in, in passing, uh, I would say, as several of you have asked in the, the last months, why exactly uh, did we, uh, do we, uh, on the basis of Acts 6 and Acts chapter 15, uh, have a congregational vote about who will be elders, uh, but in the cases, case of Redemption Hill, we didn't have a congregational vote, we simply said, these people are the elders, right? And I... Uh, briefly, it's not a Sunday school class, but very briefly and without a marker board, right? Uh, in the elders' uh, perception, uh, we, we've not really faced this question before because we do believe that we have a role as members of the congregation in assenting to our leadership, but uh, in the planting of a new church, you have a bit of a chicken and an egg problem, right? Like, who are the members of Redemption Hill that would vote for the elders of Redemption Hill? Right? Like, uh, and how would there be members of Redemption Hill if there were not elders to say, yeah, these people are members of Redemption Hill. And so uh, it's on the basis of uh, the text like this, or in Titus, you know, set to order what remains appoint elders in every church that we decided uh, that 
In this instance, uh, we would appoint the first elders of Redemption Hill, and then those elders would be responsible for drawing up a membership covenant and instructing people and drawing together a membership for future voting, right? And uh, I think that's the explanation of why we would say uh, we all have a vital role to play in deciding who the elders are, but we're going to continue to see appointing elders in Acts, and you'll see, you see appoint elders in Titus, because these are new congregations. They don't have like an existing membership the way that we do. And as they establish this church, appoint elders, uh, they then pray fast and commit to the Lord uh, in whom they have believed. And You know, walking through chapter 14, I think you could very reasonably assume that these congregations are facing all kinds of pressures, uh, that they're certainly facing challenges, uh, but Paul and Barnabas praying and fasting ultimately recognize that they've, they've done what they can to help these uh, churches start on a healthy foot, and ultimately uh, they have to trust the Lord with the continued health of these congregations. And <coughs> I also think uh, that certainly that's true here, but I think it's generally true in almost any capacity, right? That uh, we, we can only do what we can do, and we can't do more than we can do. Often we convince ourselves that we can do less than we could actually do, but at some point, we've actually done all that we can do. And I think right service unto the Lord is truly doing all that we can do and then trusting the Lord uh, moving forward to take whatever we're offering and make it far more than it is. And I, th I think that really summarizes kind of what Paul and Barnabas have done on this journey. They've done everything that they can do. They've poured themselves out for the sake of the gospel. And uh, as remarkable as Paul and Barnabas are, I think the response to this first journey far outweighs uh, what they were actually able to offer. And the difference is absolutely God's grace working through them. That God took what Paul and Barnabas were able to do and new churches were born as a result of this journey. And they make their way back. Uh, they, he, they do stop in Perga. They spoke the word in Perga, which is where they had split with John Mark earlier. Uh, and Luke says nothing here, uh, either positive or negative. He doesn't say how Perga responds to the preaching of the gospel. And unlike previously, he doesn't even say that uh, anyone responded positively positively, so I think it's probably safe for us to assume that uh, there wasn't a positive response here. Uh, but as they, uh, as they make their way back to Antioch, the first missionary journey has concluded. They return to their sending church, and essentially they give kind of the first missionary report in the history of the church. They tell them everything that had happened. <clears throat> uh, 
uh, to the whole church assembled and uh, how God had done all of this stuff through them and uh, through this journey, he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And, you know, as, as we've seen, like there were Gentiles who had the, had the faith previously, but in this journey, uh, you have the church being established in places that not amongst individual, Gentile individuals in Jewish places, but amongst Gentiles in very Gentile places. Like there is continued forward progress for the gospel through this journey. And notice they don't say, uh, look at everything we were able to do for God. And like they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They're very much giving God the credit for everything that's happened, and they're giving God the credit not talking about just the good things that happened, but everything that God had done with them, all that God had done with them. I think, <clears throat> you know... <laughs> Their perspective, I think, on God's sovereignty is, is stunning. You know, like Paul going back to church and they're like, ah, it was incredible. You wouldn't believe it. I was stoned. <laughs> like, and then, like, all this stuff happened, right? Like, some really not great stuff has happened over the course of this journey, but they're not focused so much on what happened or what failed to happen in any given place, they're focused on uh, the advance of the gospel. They're focused on what God has done with everything they've offered. They weren't uh, disheartened by things that failed to happen. They weren't overly discouraged by some awful things that did happen. But their, their focus is on the progress of the gospel. They're celebrating God opening the door of faith to the Gentiles. And, and there's no confusion about who is ultimately responsible for this. God did it. And yet, even in the way they're crediting God for doing it, I think uh, there's something about uh, the economy of God evident. Right? God did it, but God did it with them, through them. And I think it would probably be wise for us to, to spend a moment talking about why exactly uh, God does this. And I don't know that I have an answer that I would say is the answer, but I have a pretty strong suspicion that he's doing at least one thing, right? Where uh, God in his infinite wisdom decided that primarily the gospel was going to advance through the obedience of his people, through 
his people making disciples. And I think you could probably you could probably fill a book and a uh, musing on that question. Uh, I suspect there's there's one thing that we need to understand really probably more than anything else. Right? We we know that a relationship with Christ does not begin uh, apart from our recognizing our need for the grace of Jesus. Right? And it's not just a past event, but daily I am recognizing my need for the grace of Jesus. Daily we are recognizing our need for the grace of Christ. And we, we will never outgrow our need for the grace of Jesus Christ. And I can, I can say that, right? But I think in part, uh, God has uh, decided to use us to move the gospel out uh, because as much as we might say we always need Jesus, our hearts very, very, very quickly forget how much we need Jesus Christ. Right? Like, we can all say that we want to see other people come to know Jesus Christ, but we're also terrified to share the gospel with other people. Right? Like, uh, I could resolve now, I'm going to talk to this person at work tomorrow about Jesus, and then when I'm standing with them in the break room, I'll be like, did you watch the Super Bowl? What did you think of the ads? And I'll talk about everything except Jesus Christ. And I don't think I need to... We all have the same thoughts, right? Like, uh, what if they don't respond positively? What if they don't like what I say? What if it offends them? What if they don't like me? What if I get fired, right? Like, uh, in the moment, you're thinking of a million reasons not to obey God. And I want to say this carefully. They're not, those aren't foolish thoughts. Like, uh, in a sense, those are very rational, very realistic thoughts. Like, those things could all happen. In fact, probably some of them are likely to happen. Uh, but I think that the fact that those thoughts kind of paralyze us in the moment, like prevent us from simply obeying the Lord, demonstrates to us the depth of sin in our own heart, right? Like just how sinful we actually are. That like 10 minutes earlier, we can be praising God for his grace, thanking him for who he is. And then in the moment, we look at our situation and the last thing on our mind is, well, God is enough. I simply should obey him. Right? Like we we look at the situation and decide uh, that it's better not to obey. And, and if that doesn't 
for us reveal the depth of our sin, I don't really know what will. Right? The problem is, in the moment, we're calculating what is most probable without thinking about the miraculous nature of God's grace in the first place. Right? That uh, our, our, our calculus doesn't include we serve a God who works miracles. He, his grace is it is supernatural. It, it changes the equation entirely. It is all-sufficient. Whatever our weaknesses, it is redeeming. God is in the business of redemption. And the, that this lack of faith that lives in the murky water of our heart uh, I think is exactly why. Like We could gather together this morning and sing about God's grace. We can find joy in the grace of God. We could be comforted by God's grace. We can hope in God's grace and then struggle to bring up Jesus with somebody tomorrow. And thank God that His grace is sufficient. That 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 tension in our own hearts where like we absolutely believe but we're still struggling with unbelief is absolutely why Jesus came in the first place right like god isn't looking at us and like well, i don't know about these guys like god knows what our hearts are like and he sent christ and yet i think god has given us this mission to advance the gospel, to declare His grace to people who do not yet know Him uh, in His mercy. Like, He has uh, given us this task not simply to help people who do not yet believe come to belief, but to help us better understand the nature of His grace and to help us in our unbelief, right? Like, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Right? That maybe a simple way to say it. Would be sinners dying apart from the grace of Jesus Christ should horrify us. Sinners dying having never heard of the grace of Jesus Christ should absolutely horrify us. And I would think that that would be the that would be enough if we truly believe that, that that would be enough to help us overcome whatever fear is resting in our heart. But I think probably for most of us, experience has demonstrated that that's not always the case. And so, uh, you know, as, as Paul and Barnabas talk about this, God is doing this with them or through them, I think we should recognize absolutely that God was doing this with them and through them, not because God couldn't do it in any other way, but God was doing it both for the sake of the people who had never heard of Jesus Christ 
and for the sake of Paul and Barnabas, that they would better understand the grace of Jesus Christ, that they would better understand the empowering of His Spirit, that they would better understand His love for them. And I think the same thing is true for us today. That uh, when we're choosing not to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people, uh, we are also suffering loss. In, in that, we've, we've lost the joy that obedience can bring. We've lost the uh, opportunity to see God's sufficiency in our weakness. Like We are also losing when we choose not to share the gospel with others. And I would say also, uh, whether God could have done it in any other way, God chose to do it in this way. God opens the door of faith to the Gentiles because this church in Antioch trusted God to work through their weakness to accomplish His mission. And I'll say again that I think the pattern holds true today. That He will do the same thing with us if we simply trust in His grace and obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we rejoice at seeing the progress of the gospel. God, we uh, we are simultaneously amazed and not surprised that uh, Satan would throw everything that he had at Paul and Barnabas and still the gospel would move forward and still uh, lost sinners would be saved and still churches would be established. And God, uh, we are amazed because we know how hard this life can be. God, we know the world's opposition to the gospel. God, we, we know uh, that it's difficult, and yet we're not surprised, God, because we know ultimately uh, that you are more powerful than anyone or anything, and that you hold the world in the palm of your hand that nothing can prevent you from accomplishing all that you set out to accomplish. And uh, yet, God, even as we, we know these things, God, our, our hearts uh, sometimes struggle to believe them in the moment. And our lives reveal that. And so, God, we repent the sin that does lurk in our hearts. God, we pray that you would help us by the light of the gospel expose it and kill it. God, we, we pray that you would produce in us, God, an eagerness 
to walk in obedience, an eagerness to share the hope of Christ with others, and uh, a constant faith, God, that You alone work miracles, God, that You can do things that uh, no one else can do. And God, that includes taking uh, whatever we have to offer, all that we have to offer, and making it far more than it is by the powerful working of Your Spirit. And so, God, we pray that uh, we would model what we see in this text. God, uh, an eagerness to exhaust ourselves for the sake of the Gospel and uh, a trust, God, that You will use uh, it all for the progress of the Gospel, for the building of Christ's church, and for the end of all things. God, we pray all of this in Christ's precious name. Amen.